from Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont, and happy Monday. It is October the 19th, 2020. Just uh, a little over a couple of weeks to go in the... Uh, in the uh, current election cycle here to November 3rd when uh, polls close and uh, we will be uh, wrapping up this uh, presidential and other election for other offices that we have going on right now. Uh, and uh, today we have a good show lined up here on the Dave Graham Show. The uh, federal government just decided to um, to call off the census to stop counting, basically. We're going to find out a little bit about that and what the impact might be uh, from Vermont, uh, for Vermont, I should say. Jason Broughton, the state librarian and commissioner of libraries who has been following census developments very, very closely, will be uh, my first guest this morning. Uh, in the uh, second half hour, Susan Mazza from the Vermont Office of the Small Businesses, Business Administration. She's deputy director there. We'll be joining us to talk to talk to us about some changes in the uh, payroll protection programs this is for small businesses trying to weather the coronavirus crisis. Changes designed to make it easier for folks to apply and actually uh, work their way through that process. So, be hearing about that in the second half hour of the program. Later on, we're going to be talking briefly with uh, Brian Pfeiffer, former host of uh, For the Birds or co-host, I should say, on the uh, For the Birds on the Friendly Pioneer WDEV. And uh, Brian will be talking to us about a blog post he put up this weekend uh, having to do with this uh, little local radio station we all love so well and uh, the fact that it's uh, looking to raise some money. And so Brian will be joining us about 10.15 or so. Um, and then we're going to devote the last half hour to uh, the news that uh, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, has decided to close the border uh, for uh, with the United States, obviously between Quebec and Vermont, along with the rest of it, uh, and uh, we're going to find out a little bit about what folks are thinking uh, about that news. Extend the, uh, I should say the Prime Minister has decided to extend the existing border closing due to the coronavirus crisis. Uh, it had been hoped that the border would be reopened by uh, October 21st, and uh, Canada is extending that closing because the, uh, it's saying the United States really doesn't have the coronavirus under control. So uh, we'll be talking about that in the last half hour of the program this morning. Alrighty, let's uh, start right off with uh, Jason Broden. He is, as I mentioned, the state librarian. I believe he's on the phone with us. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. So do I have it roughly right that it was just uh, uh, the federal government uh, recently decided to uh, end uh, counting in the 2020 census? You do have that correct, and I will give you um, a little nuance for your listeners as to mm -hmm. um, why the state librarian is uh, examining this so much. Um, I am also this year's 2020 decennial uh, chair for the Vermont Complete Count Committee. So it's Vermont's first official statewide organized committee to look at how to assist and help with census operations in the decennial year, which are simply years that end in zero since its inception. And, and accord with the Constitution. I see. So this this is not a uh, not a duty that automatically goes to the state librarian, but you that happen to uh, you happen to pick up this extra hat. I guess is that that's, that's the best way to describe in Vermont, it. Vermont, when you are correct in Vermont, um, of course I'm not a Vermonter, but upon my arrival, I realized I had four things waiting on me. So in Vermont, everybody works more than one job. It appears. <laughs> yep. 
So, um, and I, I was talking uh, early on in the census process with uh, Sue Minter of the uh, Capstone Community Action uh, Community Action Agency here in uh, Central Vermont, and uh, she was imploring people to uh, sign up, fill out the census forms, uh, do what you need to do to get recorded, because she was saying that um, doing so is crucial for getting the right amount of federal aid into the state for a wide range of programs that help not just uh, low-income folks, but uh, the whole gamut of, of Vermonters. This can go to highway funding and a, a range of other things that uh, the state uh, relies uh, on the federal government for help with. And um, I wanted to uh, find out kind of um, how we did. <laughs> did we get oh as many goodness. people as we hoped? <laughs> well, I can give you the most current update, but um, just as you said early on in the first question regarding the stopping of the count, per se, that mm-hmm. has occurred, and that was through litigation. There are numerous challenges right now to the uh, federal administration, the executive branch, per se, along with direct uh, litigation to the secretary over the uh, Census Bureau, which mm-hmm. does not be Stephen Dillingham, but it's over the uh, Secretary of Commerce, and that's where the census is situated. And so it's, from my understanding, one of the most uh, litigious items uh, in the census history. So lots of states and groups are uh, having a variety of things, and one can look that up. Um, the most unique thing, and again, I have to give reputable sources in this time of uh, information that can be dis- or misinformation, <laughs> but yep. the um, Brennan Center for Justice has a wonderful uh, litigation tracker. If you were to type that in, you can do a 2020 census litigation, and they will show you all of the various litigations that are there for uh, apportionment counts, which meant that there is a memorandum that they'll be hearing, I think, on November 30th um, after the election on something that the executive branch wanted, which was to remove um, certain persons, um, particularly immigrants, who would not be included in the count. The Constitution, per the census, says that all whole persons are to be counted, and Vermont joined in that, and we were successful on our first attempt. Of course, we knew that there would be appeals. Um, it is not just us. It's us and a variety of other um, plaintiffs that are being heard in the uh, Southern District of New York on this specific item. But people have items with FOIA requests, apportionment counts, the time frame itself is still being debated, and so lots of challenges are there. So how it works is this money from one aspect is being brought back to Vermont per our populace when one participates in the census. The census is a constitutional act, and it is required that, yeah, you, you heard that. Some people might be, ooh, required. It is a requirement that people please participate to have a variety of things afforded to them. One would be representation to me, which is um, an important item in the U.S. House of Representatives. In our congressional delegation, it also is important that you be heard for local reasons, which is why census counts are important for state redistricting. That's going to happen um, in 2021 based on what the numbers look like. You also have these unique pivotal impacts that happen down the road, and that's going to be the federal appropriations that we get back into the state. And with that, that lasts every year for 10 years, and there are no updates or adjustments that you can do until the next census count, which will be 2030. So on top of that, the tangential things that are also being impacted because of this unique year, I think in a normal year we wouldn't be thinking about it, but the 
census counts also factor in important items that address the electoral college if needed and down the road it factors in by whatever you did in 2020 with your demographics representation also has a hand with those electors for the 2024 race and the 2028 race and again mm-hmm. nothing can be fixed or updated until 2030 that's why there's going to be a um, I personally believe a real frenzy of litigation going forward from a variety of people across the country on making sure that since the count stopped um, more than anticipated there was a request to have it until October 31st the bureau kind of said yes at the beginning but it wasn't official because Congress never picked it up um, the president gave indication that he would allow it to go early on, you're talking about July, that it would probably go on to that because the census operation takes five months to complete. No matter what has now happened, the census has been conducted in three months. Vermont, Hmm. nicely and luckily, um, strategically, we finished about two and a half weeks ahead of schedule. But that does not mean, so I want the listeners to know, that the count is accurate. We were afforded a wonderful opportunity where we became a rising star because there are many phases to have to be examined. The self-reporting is always going to be the biggest item in which you ask people to participate. So get as many people to start at the beginning. And then there are other factors that come in that help to do accuracy and completeness. Vermont wonderfully was able to complete its census um, before the count was stopped. Um, It was something that we were anticipating could happen, and it did. And some of our larger brethren, Texas, California, Florida, South Carolina, um, New York, some of them didn't make it in. The count stopped. And so that's going to be something that I think a lot of states are going to have to grapple with and then find what options they have. I know litigation is just one. The Census Bureau will tell you, if you look on their site, that 99.9% of the people got it in. But again, it's such an interesting year that all of that is being questioned because the census has its own methodology, and we aren't um, per se um, open to seeing all of that, but they do have lots of conversation. So we know that we have completed the census, which is an amazing feat in itself, because it's counted by households, which give you the household universe, followed by Mm -hmm. the people or the person count. So right now it's kind of up in the air, but we were able to complete our count, but now we're having to view the accuracy of it. So what does it actually give us? Go ahead. Go ahead. I I, I would think that that actually the impact in Vermont might be a little bit less than, than in a place like Texas or California because, um, I, I mean, tell me if I've got this roughly right or if I'm totally off the rails here, but you, our, the number of uh, U.S. House members, for instance, that we have uh, probably won't change because there's a one, there's a minimum of one for any state, and um, and we've been at Correct. that level for a long, long mm-hmm. time. Uh, and look to remain there for uh, some time into the future, so that's not that's not going to be affected. Um, I guess the, the state, in the uh, state legislature's seats there, they shift around some. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, occasionally, for instance, the uh, Caledonia uh, Senate district picks up a couple of Orange County towns and that kind of thing. Um, but the uh, I'm, I'm just wondering if Vermont actually will see less of an impact from from any uh, any inadequacies in the uh, in the overall 
census counting and so on than uh, other states would see? It will be very interesting. On one level, you definitely have it correct. We don't expect to see any major changes with our congressional items and House seat appropriations. Some mm-hmm. some Midwest and um, Northeast states are probably worried about that because a lot of people are moving to the Midwest and to the South. So there could be some um, seats that are picked up in those states as opposed to the New England and Northern. But for us, you are correct on that. Yep. Fiscally... This is going to be where it becomes interesting. Um, when I was listening to the um, item in the waiting room and listened to you about to bring me on, it was really nice to hear the conversation that you were having about the census and the sense of people might not always understand the aspects, and they on one level get it where we say, oh, this makes sense, this helps with our roads, our bridges, our education. But here is what people also forget. When you have unexpected situations like we are now, and all those government institutions are impacted, such as healthcare and workforce development and unemployment, those big structural systems also rely on that count. So people, when they are making a decision to approve money for a state, um, particularly ours, the CARES Act being one of the most recent, that is looked also through the lens of a population. So if you have a more accurate populace, people can then make sure that they have the most applicable funding appropriated to them under that time. If you don't do that, you're actually getting less than what you need to come back from the federal government, but it also means the state will still have to find a way to make itself whole, and that can lies as a challenge for Vermont. A simple item would be what people don't know on um, a general population of dynamics for finances, I can say this. George Washington University Institute for Public Policy does a wonderful research item that we use that's been reputable um, for a variety of states, and it kind of calculates this. Now, some people might say, why isn't the Census Bureau? The Census Bureau does not um, talk about the other additional nuances of what the money looks like, what an undercount is. They just give you the pure raw data, and it's up to us to kind of examine that, particularly my um, counterpart, who I have to give a shout-out to, Michael Moser at University um, of Vermont, is also the coordinator for the Vermont Complete Count Committee and our state data coordinator. So he plays this number. This is his world. <laughs> yep. Uh, but we need to take two, a. Two I was just going to interrupt you for a second here, Kate. Mm-hmm. I got to interrupt for a second and say uh, we do need to take a brief break here on the Dave Graham Show, and uh, and I also wanted to mention to our listeners out there if you have any uh, comments or questions you'd like the uh, state librarian Jason Broden, not just the state librarian, but also uh, give us the census-related uh, job title there uh, again, Jason. Oh, I am the uh, Vermont's chair for the 2020 decennial um, count, which is Vermont's Complete Count Committee. So we have Vermont's all Complete the Count Committee, we'll committee. call it for short. Jason, you made reference a few minutes ago to, uh, the, I think the phrase was whole person. And, uh, that is correct. And that that's that's uh, stuck with me a little bit because I remember there was this thing called the three fifths compromise back in the days when uh, they were oh, writing the God. Constitution. Is that what we were talking about there? Um, that's part of the legacy, but I wouldn't say the exactness, but you are right in the caliber of the interpretation. So therein is what people um, are sometimes 
in conversation about, the three-fifths, and also what whole persons. And right now, what the memorandum sought to do is to have specific persons who were immigrants uh, excluded from the apportionment counts, which would impact Vermont because the way the census works is during a specified time, you count all whole persons in the country other than visitors that you know of. Any person who is here, again, for a specific time when the census is counted would be counted as part of mm -hmm. representative of the item. Even if they are migratory, they're here on visas, they would be counted. Um, I don't know what the administration is exactly thinking, but we know that from the wording in the um, litigation that they would look to be removing a set number of persons per each state if that rule were to be implemented. And that could impact Vermont. Um, before, what people might not know, and I'm just giving you a rough estimate of what is known as the 55 large um, federal spending programs out of health and human services. There are, I think, about 210. I'd have to look it up, and so forgive me as a librarian, I'm not doing my job fully right now. <laughs> but <That's all> right. <laughs> Vermont receives, just for the 55 large programs, we receive two, over $2 billion, almost 2.5 for that. The largest thing that most people would probably expect but might still be shocked about that is half of that, almost half of it, is immediately Medicaid. So that should tell you who yeah. is kind of living in the state. And then it goes through things like student loans, Social Security block grants, CBDG grants, uh, career and edu education, of course, roads, bridges, health care, children and adult uh, feeding programs, um, unemployment, just a whole host of things. Are wrapped up in that. We fully get more on the average of about $4 billion when you look at the full scope of the census and what the programs that the federal government provides. But again, this is given through uh, George Washington University Institute of Public Policy. So it makes a very, very big deal. And some people might say, what happens if we don't get that money back? Well, then that means two things. Number one, the money is not held in escrow. It is divvied out to the remaining states. So we would be having our money also shared with other entities because it must be given out. And then secondly, the state would have to figure out a way to make up the difference with its own tax base or revenue yeah. stream. Which would tend to push Vermont's own state taxes up, I would think. Correct. Correct. Hmm. So uh, there is uh, some real worthwhile reason. There are some real, really worthwhile reasons here why. Uh, I mean, what do you think about the fact that there, you do hear, and I read stuff online and so on, mm -hmm. uh, some reluctance out there, people who say, uh, you know, I don't want to oh, yeah. register with the government and <laughs> all this kind of stuff, and, and, you know, Big Brother's watching me, and you, you heard it all, I'm sure. What yes, do you What do you say to that? That kind of attitude. Oh, my goodness. Well, this is a wonderful question, actually, because I personally had to grapple with this. Um, most people would say professionally, but I say personally, you have to always start with your personal. What do you do when you know something is important? And even people who might disagree with you for whatever reason also do understand its importance, but say, I have hesitancy on this, and here's my experience, and here's what I'm worried about. And so when the Complete Count Committee was set up by Governor Scott and I chaired, our first charge was, of course, do no harm, which meant we need to make sure that we maintain our 2010 um, average and go higher if we can. In 2010, we had 60.3 people percent of the population participate in just doing it themselves. We yep. right now are, believe it or not, are at 60.5. So we have gently surpassed, and there's probably a little bit more work as the numbers continue to come in, even though it stops. Our secondary item 
loves to deal with hard-to-count populations, isolated, rural, and small, um, the elderly, group enumeration, jails, hospitals, prisons, group homes, where you know, you're kind of blocked in for the term there, the people living mm-hmm. there, followed yep. by uh, children and a whole bunch, people of color, indigenous, and then there's a group people do not think is hard to count, which is what you just mentioned, those who distrust government. So as you can see, it's been an easy year because all of those people decided to participate. Of course, I'm being satirical right now. It's mm-hmm. been a really, really tough row to hold, as they like to say, because the distrust um, in government is starting to filter down into local as opposed yeah. to national. And so at all levels, it was a slog to educate people and make people very, very aware of the importance. We would believe if we can start focusing our eyes on the counts when they start to go to that, because that is the next phase of review, we believe that we have actually made a few strides in having people participate. Does that mean they completed the whole census, answering all nine questions? Maybe not, but we at least got them to participate by giving us some information. We don't know what that exactly looks like. In addition to there are persons who say, I don't want to give you any demographic information, but I want to be counted, which is also a thing that we did. So if you just allowed us to count you, we could get the populace, which some people know they can also give as opposed to the demographics. That is, I don't want to find it was pleading, but we wish we had had more. But overall, we thank all the persons, including those who are skeptical, who might have said, well, I live here and I kind of understand it and I see why you say it's important and I'll do my little part to do that. So just know, even amongst, I call them my brethren who are like, I am so distrustful of government right now. They at least... what it meant for Vermont. Unfortunately, we, we are about out of time. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and joining me this morning here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and, a, and AM. And uh, and uh, perhaps we'll check back uh, to learn more as the uh, litigation and other aspects of this unfold. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much. I'd be happy to come back. All righty. Uh, let's go to that 8.30 break for some CBS News, a couple words from our sponsors, and then we'll be talking with Susan Mazza of the Small Business Administration on the other side. Stay with us, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. Thanks for staying with us into our second half hour this morning on the Dave Graham Show. Uh, and uh, happy to say that we have another guest lined up uh, who is uh, Susan Mazza. She is Deputy Director of the Vermont Office of the Federal Small Business Administration. SBA has been very busy during the coronavirus crisis, in no small part uh, because it has been the uh, handling all of the uh, payroll protection plan loans to the small businesses. And uh, it looks like about 8,000 small businesses in Vermont might be looking at a way to make the process of applying for those loans easier. We're going to hear about that from uh, Susan Mazza, who I believe is on the uh, phone with me this morning. Good morning, Susan. Thanks for joining me. You're welcome, Dave. And uh, so tell us about the uh, the news here. It sounds like the uh, effort, as I mentioned, is to uh, make this a little easier for a lot of our small businesses. Is that right? 
Absolutely. Um, but first off, I want to thank you and WDEV for letting me have you, letting you have me on your show. Um, Glad to it, do it. We really do. We really do think it's a, it's a good thing to get as much of this out in the public for as many people who can take advantage of it. At least they know about it because we really do think it's going to alleviate a lot of anxiety out there. Mm-hmm. What it is is this. As everybody knows, the Paycheck Protection Program, otherwise known as PPP, was created by the CARES Act, but it was incredibly beneficial. A ton of loans were done, including in this state, and I know that so many businesses have been able to take advantage of it and really use it to their advantage, and we've heard many, many, many different businesses saying um, that it was a lifeline for them. The, the, The benefit to it is the ultimate forgiveness. And that is the process where after the funds have been used, they're going to be coming back in and submitting an application back to their lenders with information about how they use the the funds and various criteria uh, and in order to hopefully have the whole loan forgiven. And what the big deal is right now is there is a brand new option for borrowers who have a PPP loan, which is $50,000 or less, um, as long as they don't have a lot of other affiliate relationships so that they have a lot of PPP loans out there, but most most do not. But the $50,000 mark um, allows these people to do very few calculations, a very simple process. Um, you don't have to worry about two of the major criteria that we put into place for um, the rest of the of the um, the borrowers, and it's really going to be a way that they can do these quickly, simply. It's not going to overwhelm them. Um, now, to give you a sense for how really important this is to get the word out, is I mean, Vermont alone had approximately twelve thousand four hundred of these PPP loans. It's pretty amazing when you think about it in Vermont. Now, out of those, yes, some were large, and, and many were between um, uh, zero and 150,000, and we had a number that were well over that because they could have been as large as 10 million. But out of this total, 8,000, over 8,000 were actually $50,000 or less. So that's 8,000 small businesses in this state Hmm. that potentially can use this form. And, I mean, they go right down to, like, some of them are really small. I mean, we're talking $3, $8, $15, 15, $15,000, I'm sorry. Um, Hmm. So it's really a pretty amazing thing. Um, I'm I'm sorry. I have a wayward dog (laughs) downstairs who always manages to bust his way up here when he hears me talking. (laughs) That's all right. That's one of the exciting things things about uh, live radio. Occasionally you have uh, construction noises or dogs barking or whatever, so it's quite all right. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. This happens to me quite frequently, Um, so we'll see if he manages to get into the room here. Hmm. But anyway, it's, it's it's really a big deal, and I really do think that so many of these businesses, these are the... You know, these are often the businesses that the owners aren't accountants. They may not even have full-time bookkeepers on staff. 
They've mm-hmm. been trying to do the right thing. They have been trying to um, make sure that they use the funds properly. They have been nervous about the forgiveness process and the criteria that has been was set up to to make sure that borrowers you're using the money in the way it was intended. And we have been fielding a ton of questions over the last series of months about how do I use it? What is this? What is that? There's a lot of misunderstanding out there and a lot of anxiety. Hmm. Um, so this form really is just a matter of um, providing documentation for their costs, um, their eligible costs. That's one of the criteria. They have to be eligible costs. And then the other criteria they really have to meet is just to make sure that um, out of the forgiveness amount, 60% of it is going to be supported by the payroll um, expenses that they're documenting. And that's it. I mean, hmm. the other applicants really have to go through much more rigorous calculations and um, documentation requirements. And it does take, depending upon the forms, there's two other forms that can be used. One that's a simpler form, although a lot of the criteria is very similar, but it's an easier form to fill out. But then there's another form that is quite a bit more extensive, and we feel that a lot of questions for people trying to help them understand that criteria. So we do really believe that this is going to have a major impact. We also feel that many of these PPP borrowers may not have actually even had a conversation with their lender. They may have done it all online. They may have done it with a, with, there were over 5,000 lenders across the country doing these loans. So it's not just the Vermont lenders. They're the big fintechs we're taking, being, um, being used and so forth. So a lot of these borrowers who fit this description, this 50,000 and less, may not have the advantage of a good relationship with that lender to find out about things. We don't really know exactly how much the lenders are necessarily communicating to them anyway. Yeah, that's why yeah. we really want, that's really why I wanted to get this information out. So the, the, these forms, the, the, pur- the purpose of these uh, forms, uh, uh, is this for folks who are looking for new loans or is it for people who are looking to have current loans forgiven? Uh, or how, how do they, what are they actually looking for when they, when they, um, when they use one of these simpler uh, application processes? Yep, yep. Well, it's similar to a loan application, but it's actually kind of the other end of a loan, uh, of a PPP loan. When they first got a PPP loan, they would have had to have applied to a lender uh, with limited information, not like a normal loan by any way, shape, or form. And now this process, it means they're going to be filling out the forms and providing the documentation that we've laid out and lots of instructions that show SBA and their lender that the costs are eligible, that these different criteria are being met. And the game, the goal here is that at the end of the day, if they're successful and depending upon, and our intent here is to make sure as many businesses are successful um, in order to get as much forgiven as possible. 
This gets brought back to your lender. A decision is made by the lender as well as SBA, making sure that everything is, is the way it's supposed to be. With, but to a great extent, we rely on the borrower's certifications that the information is accurate and, and as it seems. And the whole idea is SBA is actually going to look at that, potentially say, yep, it's, it's approved. We're going to, we're going to do full forgiveness. And SBA actually sends that amount, which may be the full amount of the loan, with all of the interest that's accrued on that loan since they got the loan back to the lender, and the lender can apply it right against that loan, and it's wiped out. Hmm. So that that is the real benefit. It turns into, if you want to put it this way, a grant. Yep. So first it's a loan. And then if they're successful and able to um, be able to document adequately the way that each of the forms requires and, and get these things um, documented so that hopefully they're going to be able to get the whole thing forgiven, that is our game. That is why we want people to know about this 50000 We want all of those $50,000 um, PPP loans and under to be completely forgiven if we possibly can. Um, so it's it's really a no-brainer, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> it's very wow. low interest rate loan, but people don't want to have to repay that. They shouldn't have to repay that as yeah. long as they are going through this process. But that's where a lot of the anxiety um, builds up, Dave. It's but some of these loans and the people I've been working with over the months, they'll have you know, six hundred thousand, fifteen million dollars, two million dollar loans and up, and mm-hmm. they very often have complicated payrolls, complicated cost structures, and the amount of business and the amount of employees they have is so extensive that sometimes it's just a matter of getting all the documentation they need together and doing the calculations can take a lot of time. Many times these smaller borrowers don't have that time. They're simply trying to, you know, keep the doors open. They're trying to make sure that they're doing business like they need to. Anything we can do to reduce their stress about this I think will be huge. Um, I really do. I routinely, I do a webinar two times a week. I used to do it daily Hmm. that explains the forgiveness process to anybody who wants to get on it. And it would be like five days a week, sometimes four if it's a holiday week, of course. Now it's down to two uh, days a week. Are these uh, posted? mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I was just going to ask, are these posted online? And where where can folks find them if they want to? Check yep. them out. What they, people do is go to www.sba.gov, which is G-O-V, forward mm-hmm. slash V-T. Okay. And that will bring you to the Vermont District Office's homepage. And in the middle mm-hmm. of the page, there's going to be a calendar of events. And you'll see a PPP forgiveness webinar. Now I'm running them on Tuesdays and Thursdays every week. Hmm. And the connection information is right there. I do. I start them at eleven thirty every day on, on those two days. Yep. So it's 
something should be pretty easy for people to, to find out about. We have sent notices out about it at the SBA's, um, our office, but I also know that it's been distributed by ACCD. So it's gone out in their newsletters, um, and many times other uh, regional development corporations around the states have very often published this as well. But the easiest way, really, is going to our website, and you get the connection there. Another easy way is just calling our district office. And that number is 802-828-4422. That's it. 802-828-4422? Yep. Yep. That'll Alrighty. bring us right into the district office. Somebody there will, will answer. Um, mm-hmm. Danny Monaghan typically has been um, taking on a lot of the burden of, of, of um, clearing those types of calls that come into the district office in general. My email will be in that. Um, invitation that's online. My email. Mm-hmm. If anybody wants to email direct me directly, I'd be happy happy to take their emails. It's Susan dot Mazza M A Z Z A at SBA dot gov. So I've been actually sending out a lot of people's um, out to a lot of people information about the webinar. I know that the link that went out in the ACCD newsletter very recently, actually, it doesn't show you the connection, but there is a hot link in in their notice. Mm-hmm. So it'll say uh, SBA, SBA um, hosts a free webinar, and that will be underlined, and that's actually a hot link that will take people right to the Skype platform that I'm using um, with the proper connections. A lot of people don't think it's a hot link, but it is. So it also explains in the ACCD newsletter that these are being done um, on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 1130. But um, anyway, people want to find out about it, email email me, call our office, go to the Vermont's website, and uh, you can get as much information. I do do a pretty long webinar, and the reason is there is a lot of criteria that needs to be explained because the three different forms that borrowers need to use to apply for this this forgiveness, um, many of the criteria is exactly the same across all of the forms. Hmm. And I think it's really important that individuals understand the, the ramifications of some of that detail, like the eligibility of the payroll costs, the eligibility of the non-payroll costs, what constitutes the appropriate um, costs, and then what kind of time period does that cost need to be incurred and paid to be able to be included. So those things are really the same across the board. And yep. then there are the other criteria now for those other two forms that is applicable as well as the forms. And I do go over the forms as well. So I cover all three forms, all of the eligibility issues. Um, I routinely give out copies of the PowerPoint after I do them. Mm-hmm. So people can get that documented as well. And I think um, I do not record these sessions. And the reason I don't record these for playback is that um, 
the PPP program has routinely had information coming out in small bits and pieces um, in uh, over time. Because okay. the program was set up so quickly, it's just taken a really long time to get yep. the, all of the information together. And so every time I do a webinar, I am trying to incorporate any kind of new information that I have. Sure. So, it is, it's, it's, so it's, it's probably good to check in with them from time to time to just see what changes have happened. I believe you're based in Montpelier. Is that correct, Susan? Yes, it is. Yep. And uh when the SBA uh, announced the uh, the PPE or PPP rather uh, program uh, back in uh, back in March or, or so, uh, yeah. the um, you had quite a uh, quite a burst of interest. Has that continued pretty much solidly <laughs> throughout the summer? <laughs> well, actually, um, what happened is right off the bat, it was first opened up for um, applications on April second. Okay. And this, it was a massive volume right off the bat. It blew a lot of the lenders more or less away. They had everybody working this all the time, nights, days, weekends, trying to crank as many as possible. Because I don't know if we remember, there was a certain amount of money that could be used for this, and it went in two weeks. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a ton of money out there, but it went that fast because they had yep. this many lenders. The need was so huge. After that, um, Congress did allot another uh, tranche of funding for it, and then it reopened. Um, and then that went slower, much slower, to the point where the by the time the loan fund um, – expired uh the, the the expiration date for new applications was august 8th there was actually there's actually still money left wow. uh, so they really started pretty heavy right after that first tranche and then really went down and then we saw the loans getting smaller and smaller and smaller um yep. so actually there is still funding available although the program right now is closed so <laughs> unless congress oh. makes a change you know it is yeah. where we're at Mm-hmm. We'll have to mm-hmm. see what unfolds. Susan Mazza, uh, as it happens, we are about out of time now on the, uh, for this segment of the Dave Graham Show. Thank you very much for joining me. Be in touch and uh, get more information out there as it becomes available. Let's go to Wonderful. some uh, CB. Great. Thank you. Uh, CBS News here at the top of the hour. We'll be back shortly, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. Thanks for staying with us into our second hour on this uh, Monday morning, October the 19th, 2020. Uh, glad to say we have uh, Leonard Steinhorn, political consultant with CBS News, uh, joining us. Good morning, Leonard. Leonard Steinhorn, are you there? I am here. Thanks. Oh, excellent. Good. Glad to glad, glad to know that. <laughs> hey, uh, well, let's see. We are, what, one day shy of the two-week mark uh, to uh, Election Day November 3rd, and 
What's the what's the hot news on the campaign trail out there right now? Oh boy, you know, there's so much news out there. Um, part of it is where is the president campaigning? He's campaigning in a lot of states that he won in 2016 and is trying to hold on to if you look at the polls um mm-hmm. joe biden uh is preparing for their debate uh they're going to have this debate on thursday night and the um you know the word out there is that the president is not going to interrupt as much that he's going to try and show a somewhat kinder and gentler or, or more funny or amusing uh, face but he's still going to try to take it to joe biden he's going to bring up joe biden's son and all of those issues. So we'll have to see how it plays out. You know, the president, as we know, is a master showman, and he likes to create a spectacle and own the stage. So we'll see what strategy he brings into it, because the last time, clearly, it did not do well if you look at the you know post-debate polls and all the criticism he got. Um, so right now, you know, what everyone's thinking is that can Joe Biden's lead in the polls be reflected in the actual numbers? Um, and if so, it could be a big Biden win. But on the other hand, the battleground states are closer. A lot of them are within the margin of statistical error. Um, and you have uh, the potential for the president losing the popular vote by a fair amount if these polls are right but still possibly threading the Electoral College needle. Um, And that's what people are thinking right now, that it's possible, not likely, but possible. Hmm. Well, the uh, interesting, uh, we had a conversation on the radio the other day about the Electoral College and whether it might have uh, outlived its its time or whatever. if, if in fact the electoral college went uh, against the popular vote for the third time in 20 years, after not having done that uh, since the late 19th century, I believe, um, would that be a sign that maybe we need to make a change here? Well, I think people have been arguing this for a while, and in fact, in 1970, after George Wallace. Uh, you know, won five states in the South and accumulated 40-plus electoral college votes. Uh, in 1970, there was actually a move to uh, eliminate the electoral college. It passed the House of Representatives, and it fell only five votes short of, you know, defeating the filibuster in the Senate to, to move on as a constitutional amendment to go to the states. So... Um, so there's been this sort of impulse all along that the Electoral College doesn't fully represent, um, you know, the, the will of the people. And as you look at it, as you say, this would be the third time uh, since the year 2000 that the winner of the popular vote lost the Electoral College. What happens to this next generation if they feel that their votes are being disenfranchised, that the Electoral College is giving increasing strength to the minority in this country? Um, it's putting in place a president whose policies that the majority of this next generation doesn't agree to, um, putting on a Supreme Court uh, majorities that may be uh, sort of the opposite of what they would like to see on our nation's highest court. You know, you're setting up sort of a, a situation, particularly with this next generation, where they will begin to feel increasingly disenfranchised. Um, so, but here's the thing. Um, whether people feel they're disenfranchised or not doesn't matter, because if the Electoral College gives uh, smaller states greater say, 
uh, in our politics, as the United States Senate does. You know, keep in mind, uh, Wyoming's uh, 600,000 people have two senators, and California's 40 million have two senators. Um, yep. It's going to be really, really hard to change that constitutionally, and that's the bottom line. So you're setting up a, sta- a stage for conflict down the line if the will of the people is ignored, because of the way our system is set up, then it becomes hard to change because people with certain interests will not want to see it changed. Sure. Um, I wanted to circle back to something you said a moment ago about uh, the president likely uh, trying to go after Joe Biden regarding uh, Biden's uh, son, Hunter Biden. Um, and, of course, there was this New York Post story last week uh, that uh, got some some uh, right, uh, conservative uh, folks upset because uh, uh Facebook and Twitter were not uh, running it out there as they do a lot of other stuff, uh, based, basically because there was a lot of concern about its veracity. Um, where does that stand? Has that moved any? Has the needle moved any closer to uh, you know? There's really something here, or in the subsequent days, or would you say it still um, looks like a, a handoff from Russian intelligence to Rudy Giuliani to the New York Post? Well, look, I think everyone needs to do their due diligence to see if this is, this has any validity at all. But, um, the very fact that even the president was alerted by his intelligence agencies that Rudy Giuliani was, you know, having these interactions with, uh, Russian disinformation specialists, uh, independent of this particular New York Post item, um, should tell you something. Um, Rudy Giuliani, um, is, you know, has, has, a, has a conclusion and has been in search of evidence to prove it. Um, and the Russians are all too willing to provide that evidence if it can create a degree of disruption in our, our election, especially this close to Election Day. And if it can arguably help uh, President Trump win a second term, you have to imagine that the Russians want President Trump. They did in 2016. Uh, the president seems not to be critical of Vladimir Putin on any number of issues. So why wouldn't they want to keep President Trump in place? But they also have a stake in driving chaos in our political system because they Mm -hmm. want to basically create distrust in democratic institutions since they are not a democratic country. So, uh, yeah, you have to imagine that the Russians may be involved. But, you know, again, nobody should be, uh, you know, uh, have drawn a conclusion until they find the evidence. Um, but certainly that's what Rudy Giuliani is doing. If the media are doing that, shame on them. Investigate the evidence. Investigate the documentation. See if it's fraudulent. See if there's any kernel of truth. And then draw your conclusions from there. My sense is that they will find that the Russians do have a hand in this. But that's only my sense, and I wouldn't want to govern any investigation based on my sense or my sort of prejudgment. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's been happening from what I read is that other media outlets have been asking to have a look at the evidence here to actually look at the, you know, do a, their own forensic examination of the, of the laptop or or uh, look at the original emails at least and uh, have been rebuffed by Mr. Giuliani. Um, and uh, and that, that raises red flags for people. Um, meanwhile, of course, this, there's this drumbeat. You know, a lot of conservative columnists are out there writing all about how the biased liberal media won't give this story the time of day uh and the uh and they and and of course they're blasting Facebook and Twitter for putting the brakes on its distribution via their platforms um 
And uh, do you think that these other media are, are are behaving properly right now? And do you think Facebook and Twitter are, or do they, are these criticisms warranted? Look, media journalism should never be a platform, A, for public relations, but especially B, for disinformation. Um, and so there's no bias in the media other than the determination to get things right and not simply to push something out based mm-hmm. on an assertion and a claim by somebody. Um, yep. And that would cease to be media, and all the media would become would be propaganda. So the irony of all of this is that um, the the people who are critical of the mainstream media or Twitter or even Facebook on this are basically saying that they don't want the media and journalists to do their job. They just want the media and journalists to be a platform for their assertions and their claims. Um, then yep. it would cease to be journalism. So, uh, so in a very, very funny way, um, the media really are doing their job. And if they have asked for this information, as you say, to do the forensics on the computer, and that's being denied them, you know, that raises a red flag, too. If yeah. this evidence is foolproof, if this evidence is sort of, you know, sort of locked in and good, then you shouldn't be afraid to be able to share that information and, and get a forensic analysis of it. So bottom line is that, you know, the last thing journalists should be doing in anything, whether it's business reporting or entertainment reporting or political reporting, is be a platform for somebody else's public relations or simple assertions and claims. That's not how journalism works. And what it does is therefore betrays um, and, uh, and a misunderstanding of what journalism is all about by some of those sort of conservative platforms that, that basically say, hey, because it's out there, you should report it. That's the last thing any journalist should do is report something because it's out there, because if it's false, then you're reporting false information. If they claim yep. that the earth is flat and say, why aren't, re- why aren't you reporting that? Um, you know, that would just be malpractice on journalism's part to be able to say, yes, well, some people think the world is flat, the earth is flat. That's just not yeah. how journalism works. All right. Well, Leonard Steinhorn, I really appreciate uh, you taking some time with us this morning. It's always good talking with you. Always happy Let's, to do it. I'm sure we'll talk more. You want to bring in Brian Pfeiffer, our, our uh, old friend who I formerly was the co-host of the For the Birds program here on WDEV FM and AM. And uh, Brian uh, is, is a blogger these days. He uh, writes a lot of really uh, interesting essays. And uh, this weekend he, he posted one uh, devoted to uh, our favorite radio station and this uh, fundraising drive that uh, WDEV is conducting. And uh, Brian, uh, you, you, you sent me a copy of that. Thank you so much. I, I enjoyed it. And uh Want to welcome you to the air and just uh, talk about uh, what you what you talked about in your blog post a little bit. Well, good morning, Dave. Yeah, I guess I sent it to you for you know a reality to check to make sure I hadn't written anything you know stupid. Oh, you would never write anything stupid, Brian. <laughs> no, it was it was a uh, pretty. It was, it was, it was pretty solid as far as all the facts and history and so on that you included in there. In fact, I, I think I might have learned a couple things about uh, the place where I'm working these days. Of course, you, you, uh, have quite a history at WDEV yourself, correct? Well, it goes back even to before the bird show, you know, that we started back in the 1980s with Anson, Anson Tevitz, who was news director at the time. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in my earlier life, I was, um, I was a newspaper journalist. I worked for the Times Argus and the Rutland Herald. I covered, yep. you know, the State House in large part. I covered agriculture. I covered the environment and uh, a lot of health care as well. 
And so, you know, I knew well the importance of local radio and local news. And, you know, in many respects, you know, the folks listening to us now already know a lot of this stuff about DEV. They know about the station's, you know, tradition of independence and its diversity and its bond to its listeners. But I Mm -hmm. write a lot about nature these days, you know, about sort of the, the intersection of nature and human nature. So I was writing mostly to folks who might not know the station that well and uh, and but might also recognize its import its history and its importance, particularly now, you know, now that the country is so divided and so broken in many ways. Yep. So, and, you know, I you called, know, I think in the blog post I called WDV, I think I said it, you know, it broadcasts defiance to American monotony, consolidation, and homogenization, which is really a fancy way to say what we've been saying about WDEV since this, well, for a long time, what we know about WDEV. I I think, you know, one of the key differences here is that you can tune into different types of radio stations all over the country and hear pretty much the same stuff. You know, there's, there were these different classes. There's sort of the, you know, the oldies pop station and there's the, there's the, uh, alternative rock station and there's et cetera, et cetera. You got these certain, certain classes of radio stations. I don't know of any other place in the country that has a Saturday morning show called music to go to the dump by. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, and those things are tied together. You know, this, this, this consolidation in the news media, in the media industry, has yeah. led to a lot of, I mean, there's certainly more diversity. You look at the internet and there's diversity. But there is also, oddly enough, this sort of homogenization. And it's what we're seeing, not just in radio and, um, in the, in the media in general. We're seeing it across our society pillars of our society, like in banking and in um, uh, even our, you know, you know, look, look, like Green Mountain Coffee Roasters, Green Mountain Power, Ben and Jerry's, no longer owned in the Green Mountain state. A lot of our major news media no longer owned by Vermonters. So what I, you know, I think what you're getting at, especially on Saturday morning, like this monotony that you get in that homogenization. And so I drafted this blog post on Friday, the first draft mm-hmm. of it, and then I finished it on Saturday listening entirely to Joel all afternoon, Joel Madgeman, um, <laughs> from noon until 6. And, yep. um, you know, during that, those, during Joel's um, show, he played, okay, let's he played Don Ho, <laughs> Tiny Bubbles, he played yeah. Janis Joplin. He played Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan and lots of other things in between. Yeah. And I know people who actually do not own radios. They get a lot of their music and media online. And if you do that, you're going to get delivered that stuff um, because you are a commodity that gets defined by, you know, what you click on and what you like. You, you are the algorithm. But I, frankly, really like having someone like Joel uh, choose music for me for a change. 
and I'm going to hear things that I may not have been, uh, may never have heard before. And that's diver- and it's true on the, it's true as well in the station's programming. You know, I can listen to you, I can listen to Bill after you, and I do. I can listen to David Goodman in the afternoon or Greg Hooker in the afternoon. And I'm mm-hmm. going to hear stuff that I wouldn't otherwise get. I wouldn't get that stuff delivered to me by the algorithms online. Yeah, I think I think really unique about this station. Yeah, and I also think there's this amazing uh, organic connection with the community that is is reflected in part just by the advertising. You know, you really get a, a flavor of uh, where we live, um, basically listening to the guys from uh, Lamoille County Ford and and all these other folks who, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, and and and, uh, and and you know, it's it's just fascinating to me how. How, uh, we are, we are a reflection of our community and the community in a sense is a reflection of WDEV. So it's a, it's just a, it's, it's an organic connection that goes well beyond and in its depth and, and intricacies, I think, well beyond, uh, really what even exists in some, between some other media outlets in Vermont and, and their audiences. Uh, because maybe because it's been so long, long standing, you know, uh, and, and maybe because a lot of the traditions that have been, uh, going on in WDEV have just, you know, we've been at it for such a long time. Uh, and, but I don't know how, how it actually happens, how to explain it, but it's a beautiful well, thing, you know, know. Well, we are tribal and we're social and it's, you know, it's sort of like, Many of us cannot imagine, for example, listening to the Red Sox without Joe Castiglione. And there is yeah. comfort and predictability there. And even though there isn't necessarily predictability on WDV, there is community and comfort. It's people we know, even though we may have never met them. You know, like, I don't yep. go back that far. I only go back, you know, I don't know, almost 40 years or so with the station. And mm-hmm. there was a time when I couldn't imagine a morning without, you know, Mike Carey and Eric Michaels, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I thought my world was going to end when Mike retired. And but along comes, you know, along comes whoever else came after them, you know, um, you know, Dana Jewell or uh, John Noyes, they become... Yep they fill the slots and they become part of our lives. And that's just, For, that's a treasure. You know, the the other thing that really I think I think marks uh, this station as uh, a real champion of public service is that um, when, when really uh, difficult times happen, and I'm thinking now here particularly of uh, Tropical Storm Irene back in 2011. Um, I was working in the AP Bureau in Montpelier. I was I was on duty that Sunday, single staffing the AP Bureau, and uh, you know I knew that I knew that the uh, you know the, the stuff was really going sideways uh, in many many parts of the state. I, you know I saw a couple of online postings of uh, videos of you know cars doing somersaults down rivers down in Bennington and. A lot of other parts of the state were being similarly hammered, and uh, and uh, I tuned into WDEV, and and it was just amazing to me how the community just rose up, and there were people calling from all over the northern two thirds of Vermont, where the signal reaches, 
and uh, talking about how this this and that bridge just had just gone out this and that road was closed they were providing the, all this crucial information just to their fellow listeners and community members and WDEV was you know the clearinghouse for really important uh, public service announcements that whole evening and of course in the subsequent days and during the cleanup and so on but it struck me then just that just, I mean, it really hit home that evening about how valuable a radio station like this can be. And, uh, so I, yeah. I just thought that, you know, that was a, that was a key thing as well. And, uh. Well, let's go and, back before that. I mean, not, you know, like, I think it was 1992, the flood in Montpelier. Remember, this yep. is 92. This is in large part before everyone had cell phones. It was pretty much before, uh, you know, Al Gore invented the internet, <laughs> and it was. Um, and I remember that we all, where you, you know, we we turned to WDEV to find out what the heck was going on. There was no instant news back then, and the great thing about it now is that you know that you know Ken Squire, Steve Cormier, you know, like the leadership of the station know this, and they're going to continue that tradition. Um, mm-hmm. That we ha- we haven't lost that, um, so you know it's like you know when when you know when things go sideways, you know the place to come is here. And of course, things have certainly gone sideways with this COVID crisis, and an awful lot of folks are uh, trying to trying to adapt and trying to figure out a way forward. Uh, and uh, you know the economy has been hammered. Uh, Many, many aspects of our economy, uh, including, uh, radio advertising. So WDEV is do- trying something it's never tried before. And uh, you were talking about that in your blog post too, as well, Brian. Yeah. You know, I gave money and, you know, I'm sure this was not an easy decision to make for the station. I mean, I haven't talked to, to Ken and Steve about this, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, it, it, you know, when, when something you care about um, and a tradition that you want to see continues uh, struggles, as many of us are now, uh, you know, you, you know, you step up. And I want this station and everything it represents to be around. I want it to persist. I want it to persevere. So um, I'm happy to give. I'm happy to give whatever I can. I think... You know, folks can do it. Please do. And if you need inspiration, you know, like I say, lots of us know this stuff. But sometimes it's nice to read inspiration. And my own, so my my essay about this is on my website, which is brianpfeiffer.com. And then you just go over to the blog and you'll see it there. It'll take you up, I don't know, eight minutes to read it. And uh, yep. some of my recollections about uh, the station, some of my own desires to write a few things about Ken that may have never been written before. Uh, yep. In fact, you know, so among my most favorite moments at the station when we used to go in there, Anson and I used to go in there and actually record the show on real or real tape, and we would edit it with razor blades um, <laughs> uh, after the show, just going into the office and just talking to Ken. And he'd say, he yep. didn't ask me about birds or politics, he'd say, you know, what are you reading now? Or he would ask me about politics, not necessarily about birds. Yeah. So well, I want to see that continue. For sure. Uh, long into the future. 
Long may we live. Hey, uh, Brian, thank you very much for joining me this morning. It's really uh, nice chatting with you, and, and, and you know, I appreciate the, and I'm sure folks here at the station as well, appreciating uh, the kudos you're sending and, and uh, your, uh, your kind words. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, let's talk again soon. Don't forget uh, that uh, homepage, wdevradio.com, and you can find the support button there, and just click that and... Follow the instructions, folks. It's a big help for your radio station. All right. Hey, uh, let's go to a bottom-of-the-hour break for uh, some CBS News, and uh, we'll open the phone lines and talk about the U.S.-Canadian border in the next half hour. Back shortly. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. We're back, and we're going to open the phone lines for the last uh, half hour of the show today. Uh, and uh, I want to fo- focus on one thing, a big piece of news. I think it has a big impact in Vermont in particular, which is that uh, just a couple days ago, uh, Justin uh, Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, announced that uh, the lifting of the uh, coronavirus closure of the U.S.-Canadian border, which was expected to happen on October the 21st, uh, will not happen on October the 21st. Uh, the border will remain closed uh, for a while yet. Uh, the Prime Minister saying that uh, he wants to see the United States get the coronavirus under control before the, uh, before the uh, border is reopened. Uh, this is... Um, just pretty heartbreaking to a lot of Vermonters I know personally who are in uh, this uh, situation where, you know, many Vermonters have family members up in Canada. Of course, there's a lot of uh, folks of uh, French-Canadian heritage here in uh, in Vermont and uh, uh, also a lot of Vermonters who just uh, have... Um, just love to go up to Montreal. It's the sort of nearest big city to northern Vermont. And uh, uh, so if you want to take in a major league uh, hockey game or something, you uh, you tend to head up to Montreal. Not these days because the border has been closed since uh, the early on in the uh, coronavirus crisis. And a lot of folks were hoping that finally as the holidays are approaching, maybe uh, they could get the border back open and there would be uh, an opportunity to uh, – Head up to Montreal for for a celebration, or uh, anywhere up in Quebec for to join family and so on. Not uh, happening quite yet, folks. Uh, disappointing enough to say. Uh, I've seen a lot of posting about this online, which uh, maybe I'll, I'll I'll read a couple of the interesting comments uh, that I saw over the weekend on Facebook on this topic. Um, and uh, obviously, we uh, are happy to hear from you folks out there how that's working out in your own in your own lives. Uh, what does it mean to have the Canadian border? closed for you uh let us know give us a call at uh, 244-1777 that's the local number in waterbury or the uh, toll-free number is uh, 1-877-291-8255 
So uh, we'll. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was um, on uh, Saturday evening, uh, my wife and I went up to Burke Mountain Resort and uh, caught a concert uh, by Cat uh, Wright and the Indomitable Soul Band. Really terrific singer and band backing her up. Uh, and uh, it was uh, billed as the, the first uh, vertical concert of the uh, coronavirus crisis here in the United States. And by vertical, they meant that uh, the... The uh, stage was actually set up at the base of uh, one of the main uh, ski slopes on Burke Mountain, right outside the uh, the new uh, beautiful uh, hotel they built up there, uh, the Burke Mountain uh, Hotel and Conference Center. And uh, a lot of folks were watching the concert, listening uh, from the hotel balconies. Uh, then additionally, there were people who were down on the, sort of the patio in between the uh, in between the uh, the hotel and the the bottom of the uh, the ski trails there uh it was chilly <laughs> in fact there was snow on the ground up up at burke mountain um uh on saturday and and so uh it was uh, quite chilly for an outdoor concert uh and um we were in the one of the pods on the patio on uh, just outside the hotel there and uh yeah, we we were wrapping the blanket around us and trying to stay warm and noticing that uh, not only could we see our own breath, we could see Cat Wright's breath as she was belting out the tunes up there on the stage. And uh, so uh, pretty fascinating. Um, Cat About Arts uh, joined the Burke Mountain folks in putting the uh, the event on and uh, wanted to get Molly Stone from Catamount on the air this morning. Uh, she uh, came up with a conflict and unfortunately couldn't join us. Uh, she... Uh, is uh, the, their community outreach person? I was hoping to round her up, but uh, didn't work out. Anyway, um, <clears throat> the uh, she was saying that folks who want to learn about what Catamount Arts is up to, uh, it's a terrific organization. Vermont has many of these local arts uh, organizations, uh, which uh, put on uh, have, have put on concerts and other events for many years, and uh, all of them are in this tough, tough time of uh, where we're all so limited in our ability to. Uh, to go to concerts and so it was a from the coronavirus perspective it was quite a well-managed event at burke mountain on saturday as i mentioned these pods on the patio uh, there were sort of circles uh, carved that looked like maybe a chalk or something on the on the uh, the patio surface and uh, you were supposed to stay within your pod and uh, if you wanted to have your mask off if you're going to leave your pod you had to put your mask back up and and uh, they were very uh, managing it all very very carefully up there and uh Seen to do a great job, and it was an opportunity to go actually hear some live music, which I think many people are dying to do. We, uh, many of us miss the opportunity to get out and take in an occasional performance like that. And of course, the Cat Wright and the Indomitable uh, Soul Band are based in Burlington. They are ter- a terrific ensemble. Uh, you can check her out online on Spotify, on a, a variety of other streaming services, and so on. And, um, the, um, it was just, it was a great show and a really fun event and, uh, kudos to Catamount Arts, uh, and, uh, and the Burke Mountain Resort for getting that together. So, um, once again, uh, 2441777 is the, uh, local number here in Waterbury, uh, 1877291-8255 if you'd like to check in with us. And I do want to actually, uh, devote, uh, much of the balance of the, uh, half hour here, the last half hour of the Dave Graham Show here on WDEV FM and AM for today, uh, to this uh, question of the northern border. Um, you know, I was just noticing actually up at Burke Mountain, 
As is so often the case all around Vermont, we travel around and we see signs that say uh, both welcome and uh, bienvenue uh, because a lot of the folks who historically have uh, enjoyed a lot of the public venues in Vermont have been coming down from uh, Quebec, and uh, that's been a much more difficult uh, thing to do to have happen lately with the border restrictions that have been in place. And uh, the um, Prime Minister, as I mentioned, Justin Trudeau, just a couple of days ago announced that our, our plan for uh, for opening the border on October 21st, uh, just a couple of days from now, actually, not going to happen. We are we are going to uh, going to uh, keep them shut down pretty much and uh for all but essential travel and the it's going to be uh a continued tough time for many people in our border communities you, you think about places like derby line and uh New, you know newport and and uh all the way across to uh, the st albans area and swanton and so on these parts of vermont um are heavily populated with people who maybe were born in quebec or the children of folks born in Quebec, uh, they were used to going back and forth just like for a weekend or a cookout, you know, day trip to go to family cookout or something. And it's a, uh, it's, it is a, something that is, uh, really, there's a, been a tight lid put down on all of that for 2020 pretty much. And, uh, the, uh, the idea that it was going to lift, I think we were going to see a burst of, uh, of visitation across the border actually. Uh, when that, uh, when that was lifted, all those restrictions on entering and, and, uh, going back and forth between the United States and Canada, the uh, Prime Minister saying just, uh, just on Saturday that, uh, there was really, uh, couldn't really justify opening the border between the U.S. and Canada right now because, uh, the, as we see, the United States is having a big surge in many parts of the country on, uh, on the, uh, coronavirus front and uh so if the uh, border was shut down previously for the coronavirus then maybe the logic dictates that uh, it should remain so for a while and uh what a shame <laughs> i want to go to montreal <laughs> my wife and i love to head up there and have a nice meal and uh walk around and just sort of take in the big city ambiance once in a while and uh it's really it's really uh, quite a treat and it's actually is as i mentioned it's closer than boston or new york or uh, other the uh, big cities on the eastern seaboard and of course those are uh, presenting their own issues in the coronavirus crisis uh, in terms of just you know folks from vermont traveling in those directions are being asked to quarantine when they return and so on so um, this coronavirus crisis really has put a put a tough damper on uh, international travel and and uh, and all sorts of travel domestic travel as well so it's a um, it, uh, it is it is tough times for folks who might might have been hoping to uh, make a trip up to Montreal or Quebec City or et cetera, and uh, we will have to uh, see how long this lasts. I'm hoping that it won't be too much longer, but uh, this is a obviously a uh, you know tough times for uh, for the um, coronavirus crisis uh, affecting travel of all kinds and, and those those happy times of just getting together with friends and family in uh, far-flung places uh, so i'm wondering uh our listeners out there uh how are you all thinking uh, kind of wading through this process of uh 
wondering when you might uh, get back up to Canada, for instance, or have your friends from Canada come down and visit you here in Vermont. Uh, obviously, that southward travel from Quebec has also uh, got a big uh, wet blanket over it these days. And uh, let's uh, let's hear what uh, Dave from Warren has to say about all this. Dave, have you been looking to get up north and and? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, I I was hoping to, but it's uh, not going to happen now. Uh, yeah, I was hoping to go first week in November. Uh huh. What uh, do you do? You have uh, yeah, uh, I, uh, Go ahead. What, what's your what, what's your connection up there? Do you have a family up there, or uh, just uh, like no, to go up for? I just wanted to take my daughter up there, and and uh, she's a uh, aspiring dancer. Was going to bring her over to the. Um, I forget the name of the place up there, but it's... Uh, hey, Dave, could uh, you turn down your radio in the background, by the way? Uh, it's uh, interfering a little bit with our ability to hear you clearly. So. Yep. Yeah, I just did. Hopefully that helps. Great. Thank- yeah, thanks. Um, did did, uh, did you... Uh, you said you wanted to take your daughter up there for, for uh, to take in some dance performances. Is that right? Right, right. And, uh, yeah, but I guess we're going to have to wait a few months. I just, I just can't believe that... China has now opened up a, a big uh, quarterly growth, and uh, our country is shut down still. And I just, you know, I used to uh, vote Republican, and I still probably will in the future, but uh, my God, the botched response to this is just, it's its killing us. And uh, I don't know anybody who can vote for this administration in power right now. It's just, it blows my mind. And uh, that's that's about all I want to say. I can't go to Canada. Thanks a lot, Trump. Oh, all right. Uh, thank you for the call, Dave. Uh, other folks out there think that the uh, president is the, the person first in line to be blamed for the situation with the coronavirus and our continuing struggles here and our continuing inability to, to travel back and forth uh, freely uh, Canada? Or do you think that the the blame being placed on the president is exaggerated and, uh, and that it's... Uh, not really his fault. Well, what do you think out there, folks? You're more than welcome to call the Dave Graham Show here at WDEV FM and AM two four four one seven 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 or one eight seven seven two nine one eight two five five and uh, let us know what you think. We uh, obviously uh, welcome uh, the full range of opinions out there if you want to if you want to join in the conversation here. Um, and uh, the let's see here the. Um, this is the, uh, a comment from the uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Was talking about uh, the fact that uh, they've decided to extend the um, the border closure beyond the uh, August 21st date, when it was hoped that the border would reopen and traffic would start to flow normally in the north and south across the U.S.-Canadian border. The Prime Minister said, "Quote: The U.S. is not in a place where we would feel re- where we would feel comfortable reopening these borders." He, this is comments he made on the uh, Smart Start, uh, which airs on Canada's global television network. He added, we will continue to make sure that Canadian safety is top of mind when we move forward. We see the cases in the United States and elsewhere around the world, and we need to continue to keep these border controls in place. And so uh, there's the word from the uh, from the Prime Minister of Canada. Um, I saw one one uh, little snarky comment on the line saying he was going to build a wall and make us pay for it. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Mr. Trudeau, i got to tell you, that's been tried elsewhere, and it's uh, not really working out all that great. So uh, anyway, um, 
there's the uh <clears throat> that's uh that's the word from the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who says uh basically the border is going to remain. Uh, let's see, U.S. borders with Canada and New Mexico remain closed through October 21st. That was a, a um, previous announcement earlier in the COVID crisis. And uh, let's see, I think we have a caller from Ferrisburg. I missed the name. Mark from Ferrisburg. Good morning, Mark. What's going on? Good morning. I'd like to comment on the Canadian border and absolutely attitude. I, I think it is totally his fault and the way our economy is going, and we can't even go to Mexico. That's just mm-hmm. awful. And w- were you hoping to travel to Canada or Mexico du- during uh, 2020? Oh, definitely Canada. I'd like to go there at least once or twice a year. Yeah, yeah, it's right nearby, and, and you know, it's, it's uh, it really is fun to uh, just head up to Montreal. I, my wife and I love to go up there uh we were up there before the, uh, the pandemic started, and uh, I had a we had a fantastic meal. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the place; it's slipping me right now. But <clears throat> in the old uh, old city up there, and uh, I had uh, first time I'd ever ever I tried wild boar. Wow! <laughs> so wild. Yeah, it was, well, hey, uh, it was. Have a good morning, and I uh, hope the board will be open soon. I do too. Thanks for the call. Let's go to uh, I believe it's Rob in Hinesburg. Good morning. Hi, uh, Dave. Morning. So, it, you know, people have said they think it's Trump's fault and not exactly why. And and I think it's Trump's fault simply because what he did was he closed borders with people without ever even telling anybody anything that he was going to do it or consulting with them or saying, hey, this is what we have to do. What do you think? Or no, no diplomacy whatsoever. And and so everybody else said, well, okay, if you're doing that, we're doing it too. And um, I think that the, when the administration changes, if we can make that happen this, this time around, um, we're fortunate enough to make that happen this time around. That's how I feel about it. Um, yeah. Then um, I think everybody's going to open the, the people are going to get together and say, well, what under what circumstances can we travel? Because I think it's in everybody's interest that we'd be able to if we're safe. So I think it's Trump's fault. Um, his intransigence has made it worse and not better. And, um, you know, it's just part of the scattershot approach to managing the COVID crisis that uh, we're seeing in this administration. So I'm hoping in November Justin Trudeau will say, hey, I think maybe we should rethink this <laughs> and have <laughs> well. some people and have some people um, who are beginning to be ready to try to do that. I hope so. So I love going well, up there too. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I wonder what, whether uh, the um, uh, I don't recall the president. I doubt he did this actually, but it seems like you might call the prime minister of Canada first, the president of the United States. I mean, if you're thinking about a need to close the border, and say, hey, let's talk about this. How do we want to handle this? Uh, what do you? What's your perspective on on? Uh, he didn't you know, do what do you it think with about Canadians. He could have. He didn't do it with any. He didn't do it with the EU. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. So it's yeah. That's uh, that's a, that is a. It's a stylistic thing that is uh, could sometimes uh, make problems worse. I think is that's the that's what right. we it's have learned. He has he has zero experience in government and has um, never you know he didn't internalize anything that normal 
a normal government would be trying to do. So there's no yeah. background at all. And he doesn't listen to anybody else. So not even anybody who was in his government was he paying any attention to. He just told them to shut up and stay in line. Yeah. So. All right. Well, listen, I pr- thank you very much for the call. We're almost out of time here on the Dave Graham yeah. Show, so i got to jump. Thank you very but much. But I really appreciate, uh, yeah, appreciate the, uh, the input. And, uh, yeah, folks, I, I'm, uh, I, I think that the, uh, uh, the border situation here in Vermont, I mean, uh, you know, I sometimes wonder, could, could somebody call up uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and say, hey, Vermont's really doing well with this coronavirus stuff. Maybe if you could, if you roll up to the border stations in Highgate or Derby Line and you got green license plates, we'll make an exception. I don't know. But <laughs> we'll work on that. Hey, that's about it for today's edition of the Dave Graham Show. On WDEV FM and AM. Thanks very much for tuning in. Do so again tomorrow, please. Meanwhile, uh, stay tuned now for Bill Sayer Common Sense Radio, and we'll be uh, talking to you all tomorrow. Have a good one, folks.